It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. On the farms, the hens brooded, but no chickens hatched. The farmers complained that they were unable to raise any pigs. The litters were small and the young survived only a few days. The apple trees were coming into bloom, but no bees droned among the blossoms. So there was no pollination and there would be no fruit. This is Jim Fallon, Director of Project Narrative at The Ohio State University. And I'd like to welcome you to the Project Narrative podcast. In each episode, a narrative theorist selects a short narrative to read and discuss with me or another host. Today, I'll be talking with Erin James, who has selected the opening chapter of Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, entitled A Fable for Tomorrow. Erin James is professor of English at the University of Idaho and the current past president of the International Society for the Study of Narrative. Erin has done important and influential work in eco-narratology, especially on narratives about the climate crisis. I'll single out just two of her many publications. Her 2015 book, The Story World Accord, Eco-Narratology and Postcolonial Narratives, won the Narrative Society's Perkins Prize for Best Book in Narrative Studies. Her 2022 book, Narrative in the Anthropocene, asks what narrative can teach us about the current geological epoch, which is marked by the effects of human activity on the planet, and what can that epoch teach us about narrative? It's a rich study, one that my co-editors and I are proud to have as part of the Theory and Interpretation of Narrative series at The Ohio State University Press. Erin, I know that after you read A Fable for Tomorrow, you'll want to say something about why you chose it, but is there anything in particular that you'd like our listeners to pay attention to as you read? Thanks so much for inviting me to be on the podcast, Jim. I always tend to approach narrative from the perspective of world building and ask, what kind of world does this story immerse me in as I work to comprehend it? And I think that framework lends itself particularly well to this text. So that's the kind of question that I would encourage folks to have in mind as they listen. Okay, great. Now, here's Aaron James reading Rachel Carson's opening to Silent Spring, A Fable for Tomorrow. There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms with fields of grain and hillsides of orchids, where in spring, white clouds of bloom drifted above the green fields. In autumn, oak and maple and birch set up a blaze of color that flamed and flickered across a backdrop of pines. Then foxes barked in the hills and deer silently crossed the fields, half hidden in the mists of the autumn mornings. Along the roads, laurel, viburnum, and alder, grape ferns and wildflowers delighted the traveler's eye through much of the year. Even in winter, the roadsides were places of beauty, where countless birds came to feed on the berries and on the seed heads of the dried weeds rising above the snow. The countryside was, in fact, famous for the abundance and variety of its bird life. And when the flood of migrants was pouring through in spring and autumn, people traveled from great distances to observe them. Others came to fish the streams, which flowed clear and cold out of the hills, and contained shady pools where trout lay. So it had been from the days many years ago when the first settlers raised their houses, sank their wells and built their barns. Then a strange blight crept over the area and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens, 
The cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was a shadow of death. The farmers spoke of much illness among their families. In town, the doctors had become more and more puzzled by new kinds of sickness appearing among their patients. There had been several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among adults, but even among children who would be stricken suddenly while at play and die within a few hours. There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were more than. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. On the farms, the hens brooded, but no chickens hatched. The farmers complained that they were unable to raise any pigs. The litters were small and the young survived only a few days. The apple trees were coming into bloom, but no bees droned among the blossoms. So there was no pollination and there would be no fruit. The roadsides, once so attractive, were now lined with browned and withered vegetation as though swept by fire. These too were silent, deserted by all living things. Even the streams were now lifeless. Anglers no longer visited them for all the fish had died. In the gutters and under the eaves and between the shingles of the roofs, a white granular powder still showed a few patches. Some weeks before it had fallen like snow upon the roofs and lawns, the fields and streams. No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. The people had done it to themselves. This town does not actually exist, but it might easily have a thousand counterparts in America or elsewhere in the world. I know of no community that has experienced all the misfortunes I describe. Yet every one of these disasters has actually happened somewhere, and many real communities have already suffered a substantial number of them. A grim specter has crept upon us, almost unnoticed, and this imagined tragedy may easily become a stark reality we all shall know. What has already silenced the voices of spring in countless towns in America? This book is an attempt to explain. Okay, thanks, Aaron. So it's a short narrative, but it does give us a lot to talk about, I think. And there's a, you know, a bunch of narratological things we want to get into. But maybe before we do that, you could say a little about why you chose it for today's discussion and do something to place it in its historical context, something about its reception, why you think it's still so important, those kinds of things. Sure, yeah. So Silent Spring was first published in 1962, but it was the culmination of years and years of work and research that Carson had done as a practicing scientist. And when this book came out, she was already a well-known scientist and popular science writer, having published Under the Sea Wind in 1941, The Sea Around Us in 1951, which was a National Book Award winner, and The Edge of the Sea in 1955. This book though, Silent Spring, is really credited by many as kickstarting the modern American environmental movement. And that's partly because of the immediate link that people draw between this book and changes to government policy yeah. on environmental issues. So in the wake of the publication of Silent Spring, Carson was invited to testify before President Kennedy's Science Advisory Commission in 1963, and then returned to Washington later that year to make policy recommendations to the Senate. And mm -hmm. the government eventually bans DDT in 1972. Of course, pesticide use is the, if you haven't caught on by the fable yet, is the focus of this book. I think it's also really interesting because Silent Spring is over 300 pages long and everything but this tiny two-page fable is nonfiction. Yeah. But 
when people talk about Silent Spring, they tend to talk about the fable. And this was true in the immediate kind of reception of the book as well. One of the most interesting responses, I think, is the chemical company Monsanto, who kind of tried to fight fire with fire by targeting Carson's fable with their own fictional story called The Desolate Year. They rushed publication of their in-house magazine and sent 5,000 galley sheets of this story to newspapers and book review editors around the country to try to circulate a different narrative. And we can get into what that narrative is. It's filled with bugs and insects. (laughs) It's really gross. (laughs) Um, And even like typographically on the page, there are all these like little creatures kind of crawling around on the pages and reading that story. But but I do think that this is a particularly interesting story just because of its fictionality, right? The fact that it's fiction and it's preceding this big hefty work of nonfiction, but this small potent fiction fable is right. what people tend to think about and remember about Silent Spring. Right, right. So I think there, I mean, there's two pieces of that that's probably worth just posing over for now and we can do more as we go. There's the narrative itself, right? So that you encapsulate something in a story. We talk about narrative as a way of knowing, and so here's a way of putting together something that's easily followable and people can connect with, but also change over time. We think about narrative doing that, right? But then there's the idea, okay, when the narratives can be fictional or non-fictional, they can also play with that distinction. But for our purposes, we can think about fictional or non-fictional. And so here, the option that she takes is to make it fictional. And yet, at the same time, I think there's an interest in this fiction being one that the audience can readily see as possibly non-fictional, right? So the relation mm-hmm. between the fictionality and a kind of referentiality is different than in other kinds of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. You, you want to... Say some some more about that. Yeah. I'm sure we'll kind of get into this as we unpack the story more, but I really see this as a a prescient story in that it is kind of putting onto the page many trends that we see in writing about the environment these days, right? And there's this emphasis on scientifically accurate fiction, which sounds Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, oxymoronic, right? Right, But it's the speculative imagination of a future world that is based upon best possible scientific models, mm-hmm. right, yeah, of right, right. a particular scenario. And you, you can see Carson doing that, right? She's taking incidents and disasters that have happened already mm-hmm. and kind of pushing them to their extreme to right. say, if we do not change the way that we behave in the world that we're reading, right. then we will create for ourselves and be kind of subjected to this future that I'm spinning out for you in this fictional story. Yeah, and in that sense, I mean, I think that you can maybe start to segue to talk about time, right? Because in the title, we have A Fable for Tomorrow, and you're talking about this as a kind of prediction, right? And yet the text is retrospective, right? It's a past tense thing. So maybe that's a good entry into the way she's handling time here, this, in a way, paradoxical. It's A Fable for Tomorrow, but... I'm going to tell it from a retrospective perspective. Yeah. The opening line, there was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. For me, this is a really clear riff on the once upon a time in a land, you know, far, far away kind of fairy tale, Mm -hmm. you know, fable telling. Yeah. So there's the immediate invitation to 
ask readers to cast themselves back into this time of innocence, right? Mm-hmm. And a time of yeah. stability and a time of calm. Yeah. And we get it, you know, towards the bottom of the second paragraph again, where the text says, so it had been from the days many, many years ago when the first settlers raised their homes, right? So right, right. there's this emphasis, it's kind of counterintuitive in terms of how narratives tend to work. There's an emphasis on stability, right? right? She's at pains to kind of make the stability very right. clear right. and spends almost half the narrative doing that before she introduces some sort of destabilizing context or, or plot. Yeah, really, yeah, right? yeah. And the stability, I mean, it's interesting, you know, her word is harmony, right? So it's not like nothing changes, right? Because we have the seasons, right? Mm-hmm. But there's harmony. And then that harmony is the stability. As you were saying, like we think about narrative as starting when there's some kind of a disruption, right? Or instability. Mm-hmm. But yeah, as you say, she spends a lot of time establishing the state before the disruption occurs. And there's also that sense of a kind of iterative thing, right? So we do have the seasons, but you know, they go again and again. Many years are encompassed in the two paragraphs, right? So a long, yeah. a long stretch of time, right? For sure, right? I'm always struck by even the seasons that would mark kind of change and, mm-hmm. you know, some sort of death, right? In, even yeah. in a natural yeah. cycle, here are represented as being very safe, right? So I'm always struck by this line. In autumn, oak and maple and birch set up a blaze of color that flamed and flickered across a backdrop of pines. Like even the fire in this yeah, <laughs> in this yeah. world is like totally beautiful and safe and non-threatening, right? Yeah, um, yeah. There's no animals are fighting. <laughs> nothing right. nothing too bad is happening. Um, everything is very fluffy and beautiful and, and in bloom. Yeah, even in winter, the roadsides were places of beauty where countless birds right. came to feed. So we have life and, and beauty and, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, but then we get the disruption, right? Then a strange black clip crept over the area. So one of the things that's interesting about that, I think, is the way in which there's no source for this blight, right? We kind of get two things at once, right? We get the instability, all right, the blight comes, but then we also have this tension, what I would call tension of unequal knowledge, right, of, well, where does it come from, right? So anyway, do you want to comment on that? Or? Sure. Yeah. You know, it's, it strikes me that in your typical fairy tale, like the evil is coming from the wicked stepmother yeah, or some right, right. some very clear agent, right? But here it's ephemeral. It feels yeah. ephemeral. It just yeah. kind of like seeps in. It really kind of strikes me. This question of agency, I think, is very, very interesting. When I read this again, I think back about how much emphasis Carson places on just padding out the world in those mm-hmm. first two paragraphs right. and how little role any human character plays in that world. Right. We have, you know, anglers and people who come to watch the birds, but we don't have like Bob and Mary or Tyrone. Right? Right, we don't right. have any yeah. individual specified people. yeah characters with exactly. particular particularizing exactly. traits. Yeah, yeah, right. And and also the blight right is not connected to any one character, whether it is human or anthropomorphized, right. you know, a kind of natural character. And so there's this kind of again almost a an inversion of what typically happens in a narrative. It, mm-hmm. It makes me think a lot of a a statement that Bill McKibben has made Mm -hmm. about contemporary climate change fiction, 
right? So in this early short story collection of climate stories called I'm with the Bears, mm -hmm. he has this very short introduction where he talks about how stories about environmental disaster require a real departure from most literary work. And he says that instead of being consumed with the relationship between people, these stories must take on the relationship between people and everything else. And then he has this great line that I really like. He says, on a stable planet, nature provided a background against which the human drama took place. On the unstable planet that we're creating, the background becomes the yeah. highest drama. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting way to read Carson's story yeah, as yeah, really nice. what would normally just be humming along nicely in the background is what we're really focused on. And yeah. the human characters that are like moving about in this world and having their being are really inconsequential, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, maybe we could talk a little bit more even about that, right? And so, in that third paragraph, when the blight gets introduced, we do get, you know, farmers and doctors and children, but they don't have the kind of, well, we talk a little bit about their agency and, and sort of what they do and how they're responding and all this, right? Yeah, right. Again, they're just again, confused. In, in, in terms of, uh, you know, like McKibben, right? They're not moving things along, right? No, right. The farmers are confused, right? Yeah. The doctors are puzzled. Yeah. The children that are dying are dying in a very passive way, right? Yeah. They're playing and then they would be stricken suddenly and die within a few hours, right? right. There's right. things are happening to these characters. Right. Yeah. But exactly. they are not, at least at this junction in the story, they are not kind of causing any right. of this, right? right. It's right. all a kind of right. mystery about about what is happening. Right, right. It's also then interesting. And so, I mean, you know, you can think about the death of children, right? So that as a way of having almost guaranteed affective response to the blight and its effects, right? But, and you could imagine, you know, Carson sort of continuing with that, right? But that's not where she, that's not what she does, really, right? She continues with and keeps the emphasis on the natural world. Exactly. Exactly. Children dying, children being at play and dying within hours is horrific stuff, right? right? right, right. But we get this this half a sentence in yeah, which yeah, you know the narrator's talking about that, and then immediately, what about the birds? Yeah. <laughs> Where are the birds gone? And then many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed, and we're back to an emphasis on the silence. This is not the spring with no children, or the spring in which the children died, right? It's the silent spring in which yeah. the birds. Right. The birds died and the birds went away. Yeah. So right. it's really striking when you when you realize like how little emphasis this this text places on these human characters. Right. Yeah, um, right. Right. And the other thing I think that happens in that in that paragraph is the narrowing of the focus to spring. Right. And then, right. you know, that continues. So. Right. Lots of reasons why that makes sense, given what we were saying, what she seems to be up to, right? So spring is the season for life, rebirth, you know, all this stuff, right? Right, right. And the birds become the ultimate symbol of that yeah. kind of the quote-unquote natural cycle falling apart, right? Yeah, right. Um, that right. this is a spring without voices. Right. Right, yeah. And then at the end of that paragraph, she also brings in something that she's going to continue, which is the use of the word no. Right. Mm. So, you know, on the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Only silence, and we get the link to the title. And then in the next paragraph, no chicks hatched, right? Farmers no un- bees droned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no pollination, then, no fruit. You know. Yeah. Yeah. No anglers are no longer visiting the, yeah. the streams because right. the fisher died, right? right. So, right. yeah. And then even when we get to the last paragraph of the fictional part, right, we get the no again, but it's a, a different, you know, linked with different things, right? No witchcraft, no enemy action had silenced the rebirth of new life in this stricken world. And then the zinger, the, the zinger, right, the kicker. Right? <laughs> yeah. right. The here, call is coming from inside the house, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 The people had done it to themselves. Yeah. 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 It's, so it's kind of the resolution of, okay, where did the blight come from, right? Oh, you, you know, the people had done it to themselves. So yeah, in a typical fairy tale, the kind of confused villagers or farmers who are dealing with the evil blight that the wicked stepmother has kind of cast upon the town, right? They don't have much agency. And I think Carson's kind of working with that riff. But then at the end, that confusion or puzzlement, that assumption that like we really can't do anything about this this is out of our hands is totally turned on its head right Right. where the confusion becomes the real menace right and the puzzlement becomes the real menace and the lack of or the assumption of the lack of agency becomes the real evil right 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 and you know another sort of i think pick up what you're saying about playing with the tropes of the fairy tale you know another would be that there would be a hero Right. Exactly. To come. But exactly. There's no hero. And in fact, you know, we've met the enemy and it's us. Right. I mean, that, that, yeah. That, that, yeah. So there's only us. Yeah. There's only us. And so, yeah, we we have to. Well, yeah. I mean, this this leads us to the, the transition yeah. in the yeah, let's in go. the kind of non-fictional part. Right. right of right. The, the very last bit of the story, which is to say, like, I really feel like Carson's slapping us on the wrist here. Right. To say don't be so lethargic and mm. ambivalent and foolish to think that y- you have nothing to do with this, right? right. So, right. you know, this particular town doesn't actually exist, but you might be living in it yeah. if you don't act to change the world that you are reading this text in, right? Right. And I think that she really drives that home from switching the narratorial stance, right? right. We've right. been working in a third person narrator in that kind of fictional fable. And then we get the kicker of, I know of no community that has experienced all the misfortunes I describe. Yeah. So she's saying, Hey, reality check. Like now it's me talking to you, right? The scientist talking to the reader. And I'm telling you as, as a prophet, right. That Mm -hmm. this is going to be very, very bad. And the kind of way that she continues to play with pronouns, right. Mm -hmm. a grim specter has crept upon us, us right? Right, right? Yeah, and this this imagined tragedy may easily become a stark reality. We all shall know. Like right. you are in this with me, dear right. reader. Right. We we are the people. Here. We are the people yes. of who had yeah. done this to themselves, right? Like wake up, right? Yeah. The reason that there are no fish in the stream is because of something that you are actively doing, right? And so let's come alive and come out of our stupor. Yeah. Right. Right. Right, and then you know, and you could imagine that she could end there, right? But she goes one more, two more sentences, one with a question yeah. and one with the explanation, yeah. right? 
So, you know, what do you make about that? I mean, it really strikes me. I've got the book open in front of me here. And yeah. on the very next page, we have a chapter heading for number two, chapter number two. And the, the chapter title is The Obligation to Endure, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. there's this real powerful push there to say, you have to read this. You have to educate yourself. You mm -hmm. have to stop being confused or ambivalent, right? Mm -hmm. You have an obligation to do something. And this is why you now have to swallow this 300-page dose of medicine, <laughs> right, that I'm about to give you. And I think she's creating this horrific alternate world yeah. for you to live in to kind of snap you into then pushing on and reading the rest of the science that she's going to lay out for you. Yeah, 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 right. And I think, too, in terms of, you know, what she's doing with the pronouns, like the question is there's no you, you know, explicitly there, but it's directed, you know, as you, the reader, right? What has happened, yeah. right? And this book is an attempt to explain. So I'll break the we a little bit into what I know and you, and I'm going to try to bring you along with me, right? And then yeah, that, it, that's what she does. That sets up a really clear power dynamic too, right? Of yeah. I know, yeah, <laughs> I right. know how to fix this and you don't. So you must listen to me, right? right? right. It's like, I am, I am the guide here. It's right. ironic. You said earlier, there's no hero to the fairy tale, right? But yeah. there is a bit of a whiff of kind of <laughs> hero yeah. in this last right. rhetorical question where she's saying like i'm the one who's gonna the truth gonna, teller you know, right the, 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 yes. the truth teller as hero in yeah. a way right exactly yeah, yeah, exactly yeah yeah, yeah yeah all right well uh, that's great i know that you also want to talk some about you know how this is related to contemporary narratives about climate environment and so on so Go ahead. Why don't you start that? <laughs> yeah, sure. So I've already kind of tipped my hat to this yeah. with the McKibben quote, right? Yeah. Um, and there is a, a, a kind of very robust debate that's happening within the environmental humanities about the role that narrative has played in producing and facilitating the climate crisis, mm -hmm. right? That we, you know, we tell each other the wrong kinds of stories and that, you know, leads us to live in the world in ways that are destructive and violent. And then also the potential for the right kind of story to change the narrative and thus, you know, help. Right. There are lots of different takes on this and people who are more optimistic and right. less optimistic right. about the role of narrative. But what I find really interesting here is just that it's like the idea that to kind of push people or scare them almost mm. into caring about the environment, the most efficient way an effective way to do that is to spin out a fictional world for them that is based upon accurate scientific modeling right yeah, right right and i think that is a really important part of contemporary climate change fiction i'll give you like one clear example would be mcsweeney's magazine released a special issue in 2019 called 2040 ad which is like their climate change story issue uh -huh. And this issue involves McSweeney's pairing different writers with scientists from the National Resource Defense Council, right? And also asking them to think about a specific location in the world, right? So you okay. have, you know, a story set in San Francisco, a story set in Turkey, et cetera, et cetera. And the pair of the writer and the scientist would collaborate, right? And mm -hmm. the writer would kind of try to download all of the science and then spin out this fictional world that is based upon what the science is claiming will happen, right? Or yeah, is this kind yeah, of modeling okay. will happen. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of interesting 
introduction to that where the National Resource Defense Council chief program officer, whose name is Susan Casey Lefkowitz, kind of says like, you know, data can persuade, but it takes stories to move us, right? right? right. And she talks about writers, particularly fiction writers, as being indispensable partners, right? Mm -hmm. In a goal that they share with climate advocates, moving people to think and act differently. So this idea that it's the job of a writer to get their head around the science and then mm-hmm. present that science in such a way to make people care about it. Right, right, right. right. And there, I think, you know, we get into at least one aspect of narrative, which is the way in which it can engage our emotions, right? The affect exactly. of dimension, right? And so you know, exactly. we, we talked briefly about that in the course, and especially with the way she handles the death of children, but this other thing, right? So that's one thing that data won't do, right? It, exactly, it, exactly. You know, evoke your emotions in the same way, right? We talk about the crisis in the humanities all the time, right? But when I talked to some of my science colleagues, particularly people who are working on on climate, they talk about a kind of a crisis in science in which they've accumulated so much data, right, Um, to to kind of illuminate what is happening. And it's just not, it's not shifting public opinion. It's not shifting policy sufficiently. And so hence the turn to narrative, right, and the turn towards these kind of fictional tools in particular that are emotionally potent, right? Right, right. And the other thing, too, is, you know, and we get that a little bit, and we were talking about, like, the people had done it to themselves, right? There's sort of good guys and bad guys, right? I mean, there's there's this kind of ethical and political dimension to a well-told story, right? And, And fiction can do that as well. I think this is another way that Carson's story is anticipatory. So another big debate in the environmental humanities right now is this idea of the Anthropocene, right? The Anthropocene as a geologic epic suggests that humans as a species, right, Mm -hmm. have registered our presence in the geologic strata. And so you hear geologists talk about this human species, right? Mm -hmm. And Rightly so. There are lots of sociologists and humanities scholars who are saying like, well, well, hold on. (laughs) It's Mm. not all humans, right? That there are some who are doing more to to register their presence than others. That nuance is missing from Carson's story, right? Right. That the fact that, I mean, the story is set in America, right? So there is some specificity there. But the fact that none of the characters are really all that fleshed out, right? The fact that the pronouns us and we are so capacious at mm-hmm. the end yeah. suggests that all of us have the same obligation mm-hmm. to change our ways of living right. when other scholars would argue like chemical company CEOs <laughs> probably have more of an obligation right. than the farmers who are being kind of, you know, strong-armed into using these chemicals on their crops, sure. right? Yeah. So so that's also kind of an interesting tension that you see in Carson's story that is still playing out in yeah. contemporary climate change fiction. Right, right. And there too, I think we can get at, you know, the idea that any one narrative is only going to do some things, right? That to some degree we need a multiplicity of narratives and even, you know, we can put narratives in contest or narratives compete with each other, right? They talk back to each other and so on. And yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think Carson's narrative works really well for people who are prone to pro-environmental <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. stances, right? In which like the 
losing the birds would be a shocking, yeah. a shocking idea, but you know, it might right. not. Right. And um, so what, yeah. Well, so what Monsanto is doing is contesting it with the bugs. All right. You're going to have, you know, bugs everywhere. Right. So yeah. yeah um, in a really grossly specific <laughs> kind yeah. of way of lots of descriptions of creepy crawlies and like, yeah, you know, yeah, um, yeah. that is an emotionally potent narrative in its, own, right, it's right, a, in its right, own capacity. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, there's a way in which then, you know, the narratives will take their stances and then, you know, we as readers and viewers need to think about, oh, what do we think about those stances? And how do we work, you know, to, in in the space uh, where these narratives are in contest? And, Right. This is why rhetorical narrative theory is actually a really useful framework for thinking about environmental literature and particularly fictional stories of climate disaster or environmental disaster. There's a clear dynamic between author and reader in these texts, right? right? right. Where the authorial intent is very, very clear uh -huh. and the obligation of the reader is very, mm, very clear, yeah. right? And so, you know, what do we do with that? Right. And, and, and kind of yeah. how does it read to various people? And yeah. 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 Right. Right. And, and, you know, that gets maybe a little bit into some of the, you know, questions about the aesthetic dimension of climate change fiction in the sense that we could say that there's a kind of bias or a suspicion or whatever skepticism about things that are clearly didactic. Yes. Right? Right. Yes. So on the one hand, we say, okay, clear stance taking. Uh, readers invited to take these positions, feel these kinds of things, et cetera, make these kinds of judgments, et cetera. But there's a branch anyway of thinking in literary studies about, well, that's that's aesthetically weak or deficient or something. Yeah. And I mean, there's definitely Amitabh Ghosh has famously made the argument that climate change fiction is aesthetically weak. Right? <laughs> it's like, uh, okay. yeah. it's not particularly good. My least favorite examples of climate change fiction are the ones in which I feel the text is yelling at me, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And it is pummeling me, right? Right, right? To say, shame on you, either shame on you or like get up and do something. Mm. And those kind of tend to be the ones that paint in very, very broad strokes here. I typically associate those texts with the ones that are leaning most heavily into like accurate scientific representations of climate disasters, mm. right? That is trying to be as mimetic as possible, mm -hmm. right? In a prophetic way, as a means of, sh of shock. Right, right? Right, um, and yeah. then usually overlaid with some sort of like, this book is an attempt to explain to you why you need to do something differently in the context that you're reading in. Yeah. Yeah, and so what would be at the other end of the spectrum, right? That's sort of where yeah. you respond more. I just like the really weird stuff. Okay. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because I'm a narrative scholar and someone who's interested in form and narrative resources. And mm -hmm. I'm much more interested in the kind of text that will task a reader with doing kind of cognitive and imaginative gymnastics of okay. living in a world of instability, right? Yeah, so yeah. the kind of famous example that people know well would be like the work of Jeff Vanderweer, right? Mm -hmm. And the kind of new weird fiction would be one clear example of that. And I tend to respond to that yeah. more in that those texts are kind of creating a, a world for me that mm -hmm. is inherently based on instability and difficulty with predicting things okay. uh -huh. kind of humming normally in the background right yeah and i find that so much more interesting than just yeah. reading yeah. 300 pages about 
hurricanes, right? And, right, right. Know, okay. Yeah. Well, that's interesting yeah. too. But yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know, in a way, it circles back a little bit to what we started with available to tomorrow in terms of like degrees of fictionality, in the sense of mm -hmm. the relation between the actual and the fictional, and the way in which you want there to be something rooted in the actual, but you don't want it simply have that actual sort of simply fictionalized and turned into a sermon. Um, right. And, yeah. you know, another debate that's happening amongst environmental humanities scholars that are interested in affect, right, is recognizing that scaring people is usually not a very efficient way uh -huh. of getting of getting of getting them to change their behavior, that yeah. it can just be completely overwhelming. There's actually new sociological research out that suggests that this is actually a way to facilitate and spread climate denial, right? Uh -huh. Kind of head in the sand. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. this is overwhelming. I'm just I can't not gonna, think about it. Yeah, yeah. I cannot deal with it. Right. Yeah. So you then see, you know, what about humorous climate change fiction? Right. Yeah. Or what yeah, about yeah. what about climate fiction that's not just based upon terrifying people yeah. with their their children are going to die. Mm -hmm. This also though reminds me of this like much more kind of base level complicated relationship between climate change and fiction, which is at the heart of these debates about denial and acceptance, right? So, you know, there's one stance, which is climate change is a fiction right, in right. whatever version of the, of the fiction that would be. And then there's the other stance, which says, you know, we actually need imagined representations of the future to understand what mm -hmm. is happening. Yeah. I'm not... I'm not implying here that science modeling and climate modeling is a practice of fiction, right? I think it's much yeah. more complicated than that. But this idea that there is some fictionality that underlies scientific yeah. modeling. Right, um, right. Even I'm thinking about one of the latest reports from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. They lay out like what the world will look like at one degree centigrade uh -huh. temperature uh -huh. rise, 1.5, right. 2. And so there are these different versions yeah. of alternate yeah possible futures that we have to kind of navigate to understand why we need to do something right now. Right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. that kind of speculative nature of, of right. climate modeling, right. I think is so interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so again, like we have the model, which is predictive. And to some degree, we could say there's an element of fictionality because we haven't gotten there yet. And the, yeah. but at the same time, it's got to be grounded in the actual. Right. Yeah. 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 It's for yeah. it to be plausible and and to have that kind of effect of, all right, well, we need to change what we're doing. Yep. One of the other things that's interesting about the work you're doing and the discussion we had today is the way in which it's sort of pointing to kind of the uses of narrative theory or the uses of narrative analysis, right? Um, and a kind of maybe move within narrative studies itself, I mean, not the only move, but certainly an important move to think about applied neurological analysis. Yeah, yeah. I think this is such an interesting case study for mm -hmm. that type of work. I know there are many people who are thinking about applied narratology, and in particular, the use of narrative and science communication, okay. right? This is yeah. a kind of rich field, both within narrative studies and within science communication studies. Yeah. When I started doing interdisciplinary work with some of my science colleagues at the University of Idaho and beyond, one of the things that I just was fascinated by to begin with is I would say, oh, I study narrative. And they're like, oh, I know how to do narrative, right? I've taken a workshop on how to use narrative uh -huh. in my science writing. Yeah, and yeah. I'd say like, what does that mean to you? And it means something completely different to them than it would to me. And 
in my mind, yeah. it often means something pretty limited, quite outdated, right? Uh-huh. Um, a, a very kind of small way, yeah. an unambitious way, really, uh-huh. of thinking uh-huh. about narrative. Is sort of like event-centered? This happened, then this happened. Absolutely yeah. event-centered, yeah. right? Yeah. It's like to the point where some workshops for science communication using narrative and science communication are so prescriptive as to say like well in the first sentence you would do this Mm. and the second sentence of your abstract or essay you would do this and in the third sentence you would do this and you would use these types of words to create this particular event sequence right? right right but no discussion of cognition or you know, emotion mm. or affect, mm. no, really no attention to playing with this change in narrative voice, yeah. right? Okay. Um, or yeah. any narrative resource, yeah. really, yeah. other than this basic event sequence. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do think this is such a kind of ripe conversation for narrative scholars to yeah. enter into, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. And I think people would welcome us and mm-hmm. they have been welcoming us yeah, into that yeah. into that conversation so yeah i see it as a really really important step and often when i'm making the case for why my colleagues would benefit from having more robust conversations with me i'll like trot out rachel carson uh-huh. <laughs> and, yeah and they'll be like oh yeah, <laughs> right? yeah i remember that yeah yeah yeah, yeah. that's good yeah yeah. So. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, that might be a good note to end on. But uh, if there's anything further, anything that we didn't get to that you were hoping that we'd touch on? Uh, I don't think so. Time? I just want to thank you again for inviting me and indulging my kind of chat about climate change and Rachel Carson. This was delightful. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was a real pleasure. And it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. Aaron. Thank you. So, so thank you. All right. So again, thanks to Aaron and thanks to our listeners. And I just say, as always, I appreciate your feedback, and which you can send to us at the email address Project Narrative, one word, at osu.edu, or on our Facebook page, or our you can send it to our Twitter account or X account, whatever we're going to call it. We're still there at PN Ohio State. And I will just end by saying you can find. 20-plus additional episodes of the podcast at the Project Narrative website or on Apple Podcasts. Thank you again. Mm -hmm.